We have three readings from Exodus today. The people cross, of Israel crossing the desert from Egypt, heading for a promised land. Exodus 15, 22 to 26. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and went out to the desert of, of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are, we, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and, all, and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Exodus 16, 1 through 5. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gathered on the other days. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. The whole Israelite community set out from a desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They encamped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the temple. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock, and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Thank you, Greg. Today we move from the powerful and poetic song at the sea, which we looked at last week, to something that to me sounds a, a bit more like I hear from the back of my van at an hour into a nine-hour road trip. I'm so hungry. I'm so thirsty. I'm going to die. I'm not the only maybe person who's heard this. 
Uh, the Israelites, uh, they've left the Red Sea. They're on their way to, to Mount Sinai, eventually to the Promised Land. And we move from this dramatic uh, rescue scene in the desert to, to now the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that we, we have these three pretty well-known stories, all of which involve food and water, grumbling and testing. Uh, the first stop is this place called Mara. The Israelites have been traveling for three days, and, and they begin to grumble to Moses, what are we going to drink? So again, what a change from last week. We, the language we looked at, uh, look, look what an amazing God our God is. He hurls the horse and driver. He, he's our strength. He's our, our defense. Nothing can stop the Lord. So we're going to die. You know, we're going to die. We have no drinking water. In fairness to the Israelites, they've gone three, do- three days without water. You think about it, that's, that's about the most a person can go physically without water. I have no idea what it's like to go three days without water. I've, I've been thirsty enough to know, maybe you have too, at a certain point, it's all you can think about. Like you are so thirsty that it, it just begins to consume your mind. That's all you can think about. And the Israelites are at a point where if they don't get some water soon, they are going to die. And they start grumbling. God responds to their grumbling by telling Moses to take this piece of wood, to to throw it in the water, which then transforms the bitter water into drinkable water. And we'll we'll read this. And this is the first slide, if you could put that up, Ron. I think this is really important here. Hold on just a second. Forgot my mic when I started. All right. There the Lord issued a ruling and an instruction for them and put them into a te- to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring you in any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So notice a couple things here. Why are the Israelites in the desert? I mean, if you thought about why does God lead them right from the Red Sea to the desert? Well, it's because God wants them there. I mean, it's kind of obvious, but I think we need to take notice of that. God, the Israelites are not in the wilderness because God is like, not sure what the next step of the plan is, and he's going to buy some time for them in the wilderness. They have very intentionally been led into the wilderness. Now, why? And so begs the question, why would God want them in the wilderness? Well, in the Bible... Wildernesses, deserts, often those words are inter- interchangeable. They're places of testing. They're places, uh, even now, especially for many of you, that wilderness areas are not where you want to be. I like to be there, but maybe you, you don't. Uh, why? Because they're harsh environments. They're, you know, food and water are, are scarce. You're exposed to the elements. The Israelites are being uh, tested, and they're being tested for a reason. You know, again, God doesn't just want to mess with the Israelites. He doesn't want to just make their lives difficult. He's testing them for their benefit. And we need to, that's important. God is testing the Israelites for their benefit. And later on, we we get, this helps us understand, because in Deuteronomy, Moses, this is years later, Moses is looking back. They're just about to enter the promised land. and, And he's going to look back at the time in the wilderness and say this. You can put up the next slide. Okay, remember, this is Moses looking back. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test. There's that word again, test. Why? In order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. 
He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So notice a few things here. Moses, he looks back all these years later from just about to enter the promised land, and he, he can understand clearly what was happening in the wilderness, in the desert. Israelites are being tested, but they're being tested for a reason. Again, they're being tested for their benefit. And Moses can, can recognize in the midst of that, that testing, that teaching, that they're being taught. Okay? They're being tested, but God is also caring for their physical needs. Like we notice in that passage, he talks about how their clothes didn't wear out and their feet didn't swell. Okay, so God is caring for them as a father cares for a son, but he's also testing them. And again, it, it, you know, looking back, this all makes sense. This is, there's testing, there's teaching, there's caring, there's disciplining, but it all makes sense in hindsight, 40 years later. At the moment, everyone is freaking out. The Israelites are freaking out. Like they think they're going to die of thirst and then, then hunger. Moses is freaking out. He is crying out to God, these, what, what do I do with these people? Like, they're about to stone me. If you, so I think maybe just a first like, little application. Like, if you find yourself in a wilderness situation, just recognize it's really hard to see beyond that. If you're kind of freaking out in your wilderness situation, you are not alone. Okay? You know who's not freaked out here is God. Because God has a different perspective of what's happening in the wilderness than the Israelites or even Moses does at this time. There's two different perspectives. Okay, from the Israelites' perspective, uh, it, it feels like there was this dramatic rescue at the Red Sea only for God to then lead them on to a, a death march in the desert, which obviously doesn't make much sense to them. The Israelites' number one concern right now is how do we get water? How do we get food? We're going to have to find this fast. God's aware of that concern. We see in this passage he will care for that concern. But, but you need to see that God sees through that, that immediate need for water. God sees a thirsting beyond the thirsting. He knows they need training. He knows they need training on how to obey the commands of God. Okay, they're going to need to learn to trust God. That God is doing this for their benefit. That God wants the Israelites to flourish. Okay, two different perspectives. Same place in the desert, two different perspectives. A short-term view and a long-term view. Let me see if I can kind of illustrate this with an example. A couple weeks ago, I took my, my two older kids down to, to West Virginia to do a two-night canoe trip on the Greenbrier River. It was their first overnight canoe trip. First day, we, we put in the water. It's 50 degrees, and it's raining. And it was, frankly, pretty miserable. Rained almost that whole day. And I'm looking at my kids, and I'm looking. I was with a buddy of mine, so there's two of us in each canoe. And I'm thinking, this was probably not the best introduction to canoe camping. And I thought, man, my friend, he, he had texted me a few days before and said, you know, the forecast doesn't look good. I would completely understand with your kids not going. And my response was, it's going to be an adventure. It's going to be an adventure. Um, so part of me, as I'm looking at my kids in the canoe, I, like, want to get them out of that situation. I want to extract them from the discomfort. Okay? But there's another part of me, I felt these two conflicting urges, that saw the benefit to my kids of being in this hard situation. And at once, uh, you know, again, Rain, I think, was picking up. I said, you know, this is character building. And I, they, I don't know what they thought about it. They didn't say much. Uh, to their credit, they never complained that whole day. 
But I'm imagining in their head, they're not thinking, you know, I'm miserable right now, but I am so grateful that I'm being tested in the wilderness because it's building character. Like in the wilderness, you are, are focused on the essentials, keeping warm, keeping dry, eating. And as a parent, though, I'm trying to do two things at once. I absolutely want my kids to be warm and dry and taken care of. But I see this as training. Because I don't want my kids, every time life gets hard, to think that what you do is you just bail. Because I know, like even there's a, there's a tendency, even maybe a good tendency to want to extract your kids out of hard situations, that probably the worst thing I can do for my child is every time something difficult comes up is to remove them from that situation. In the short term, makes them happy. In the long term, it's about the worst thing you can do for your child. Okay, kids push through. Eventually came out, they get to the last day, we go through these really cool class two rapids, and they say, like, we, we got to do this every year. It was great. God cares about the Israelites' immediate needs. God's going to give them water, God's going to give them manna, eventually give them quail. They're not going to die in the desert. But God's looking beyond the immediate needs. He's looking beyond the immediate thirst to a bigger need. Okay, you want water? I get that. But you need to learn something else, obedience to the word of God. You need to learn uh, to trust me that my instructions are going to lead to healing. Because that's, uh, that's what that line in that, that first story at Mara says. It says, if you listen carefully to the Lord, if you do what's right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and all his decrees, I will not bring you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And we hear that language of healing, and, and typically in our kind of individualistic minds, we think of individual healing, absolutely God in the Bible heals individuals, but, but this promise is being spoken to a whole community. And as Christopher Wright points out, the, the, the real thrust of this promise is that, uh, that obedience to God's law is good for society, is good for the whole community. When the, when the Israelites live by the standards that God gave them, this is going to lead to social health. It's going to live to, to biblical shalom. It's going to lead, maybe another way of saying it, it's going to lead to human flourishing. And this is a really important principle that we see here, right? It's, it's fairly straightforward, but I think it's worth saying. Living by God's commands leads to biblical shalom, leads to healing, leads to human flourishing. Okay, and I'll think about the opposite of that. If, if, if living by God's commands leads to flourishing, conversely, choosing not to live by God's commands it's going to lead them, lead them in the opposite direction. It's going to lead to sickness. And, and in the book of Romans, in the first chapter, Paul, different world, the Greco-Roman world, he takes a look around this world, and he sees, uh, he sees a society that looks sick. And as he, as he surveys this world, he sees all these ways that people are choosing not to follow God's decrees. He looks around them, and sexual immorality is rampant. He sees greed he sees deceit, he sees arrogance, he sees murder. I mean, you go back to Romans 1. It is quite an indictment of, of what he sees. Paul sees a society that is sick. He sees exactly the opposite of biblical shalom. And he notes in, in Romans that people, they know, they know God, they know uh, God's righteous decrees, and yet they choose not to follow those decrees. And again, as Christopher Wright points out, this is, this is a kind of social disintegration. This is dysfunction, a dissolution, dissolution that Paul observes around him. And 
but it's not so much the reason for God's judgment as it is the outworking of it over time. So when people, when societies choose to ignore God's commands, this is the path that leads them down. It leads them down a path of sickness. Now, oftentimes we think about God's judgment, we think about like God like zapping someone, which really doesn't happen. That's how we think of God's judgment. But really, very often, here's the way God's judgment works. God gives commands. People choose not to follow those commands. And God basically says, okay, you want to go down that path? You want to disobey my commands? You're going to see where that leads. It's going to lead you to a place of sickness, and that's going to be my judgment. But here's what I think we sometimes miss. I don't know anybody, I don't know any society, I don't know any individual, individual that says, you know, two, two paths diverge in a wood. One led to human flourishing, one led to sickness, and I took the one that led to sickness. Nobody ever says that. People, the reason why people won't say it is because people trust that they know the path to human flourishing better than God does. Like, I, I almost can't emphasize this I've been thinking a lot about this, how prevalent this is right now, that we as a society, but I think also as a church in many ways, we've begun to think that we have a better sense of human flourishing than God does. And I was thinking about this week about how, how fractured and divided our country is right now, and I think the temptation is to look across the aisle at, at people you disagree with and think, these people are nuts. These people are crazy. They are trying to destroy our society and our country. And there's probably, there's a very small percentage of people that their minds are so darkened that they are uh, bent on harming society, okay? There's, there's, but the vast majority of people, okay, whether, it's hard to believe this, but the vast majority of people, they hold their convictions and beliefs because guess what? They think they're right. They think that their convictions are genuinely what's best for not just for them, but for society. And, and guess what? If everyone could just believe like they believe, we'd all be doing great, right? This is, not, this is not exclusive to any portion of the American population. This is most of the American population, okay? In other words, most people, I think, want a flourishing society. Most people want health. The problem is, is just because you want that doesn't mean you're going to go down a path that takes you there, okay? Our feelings... Our instinct, instincts, even though when they're good intentions, even when we kind of call that love, that can lead us as individuals and society to very dark and troubled places. Okay? Let me say that again. Even when our intentions are good, when we look to ourselves for how we should go down the path, that leads us as a society, as a church, as individuals, to dark and troubled places, which is why... We as followers of Jesus, we don't use our guts to figure out the path of human flourishing. We don't like wake up each day and say, I wonder where, what we should do about this. What we do is we turn to Jesus. We turn to his teachings, his life, his commands. And if you're going to do that, you gotta, there are two things are going to have to happen. One, you're going to actually have to know the commands of the Bible, the decrees of God. So the last few years, I don't know if anybody's noticed that maybe you have, I've basically shifted to preaching through books of the Bible. Not because there's not a place for topical sermon series. Like, there's a place. I plan to do one this summer. Um, but it's just too easy when you go to a topical series to just get the Bible to say what you want. I'm not really interested in getting the Bible to say what I want. What I want to hear is, what does the Bible have to say to me 
and to us. And, and of course, we've got our limitations. I have my limitations as a preacher, as an interpreter of Scripture, for sure. I get things wrong. But if we don't even know the commands of God, how are we going to follow them? Okay, that's the first thing. We're going to have to know Scripture. Like, biblical literacy matters. Okay? The second thing we're going to have to do, we see this in the passage of Exodus, is not just listen carefully to the words of God, not just to know the commands of God. In some ways, that's kind of the easy part. It's the first part. But to actually follow them. That's what, that's, what, that's what Moses is saying. And that takes trust. Because, see, the Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, they have lots of things to say to us uh, about what leads to human flourishing. Uh, they, they have things to say to you about your sex life. They have the things to say to you about how you handle your money. They have things to say to you about in terms of your body that are wildly at odds with our culture. And not just our culture, but even parts of our own church. Jesus' vision of what leads to human flourishing is constantly at odds with our society's vision of flourishing. And you and I are going to have to be forced to decide, okay, do I trust that the commands of Jesus lead to healing, or do I trust myself? Okay, do I trust the commands of Jesus, or do I trust my social media feed, or do I trust the news broadcast in the evening? And if you're like most of us, you're like, of course, I'm 100% with Jesus. Like, no problems there. Here's my challenge for you this week. Go back, read the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Matthew 5 through 7. Quite a few commands in that little block of teaching. And most of the time we read that, we just kind of brush through it, see it as good advice. Do not lust, love your enemy. Do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't judge. How are we doing? Go back to Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and find out, are we really listening to Jesus? Because Jesus ends that Sermon on the Mount interesting by saying, if you listen to these and put them into practice, that's the wise man. The person who's foolish hears these commands and doesn't put them into practice. You see the connection between Moses saying, Hear the words of God and put them into practice. Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and gives us an even better understanding of God's will and says, hear those words and put them into practice. Okay, we've got to learn how to trust that Jesus knows the path, the vision to healing, to human flourishing better than we do. Okay, I think that's the Israelites' test in terms of the, the words from God, and it's our test today. Let's keep going. Let's find out how these Israelites do on their test. Fast forward about six weeks, Israelites are moving farther down in the desert. I think they're in the desert of sin by this point. Now the problem is not water, but food. They got no food. Whatever supplies they brought out of Egypt are gone. And now they're at risk of mass starvation. Okay, pattern, start to grumble. Moses and Aaron, we had it so good in Egypt. Sat around these pots of meat, eat all we wanted. Now we're starving in the desert. How does... God react to the grumbling and this extremely distorted memory of life in Egypt. He feeds them. He tells Moses, hey, bread is going to rain down from heaven. Like, just notice, God is so patient here. God is so patient. So much more patient than I am, I will say. But along with the bread from heaven comes another test, the test of obedience. The Israelites, okay, here you go. They got their chance to put into practice what they learned. They were told at Marah, they were to follow the commands of God. Here's the God's commands. Let's see how they do. 
Okay, bread comes down from heaven. Let's look at verse 20. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. Test number one, gather only what you need for the day. Failed. Okay, but there's another test, right? There's another way uh, to make up for it. There's test number two. Maybe the Israelites will do better here. Okay, they're told uh, six days, bread's going to come down. No bread on the seventh day. That's going to be a day of rest. We hear about Sabbath for the first time in the Old Testament. Okay, so you don't need to gather anything on the seventh day. Go out on six days, bread, seventh day, no bread. Right? Seems fairly straightforward. I think hopefully you can pass this test. Let's see, verse 27. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Okay? Test number two, don't go look for bread on the Sabbath. Failed. Over two. Right? They were just told, hey, you want a life of flourishing, a life that leads to healing? Follow God's commands. They don't follow. The Israelites have legitimate need. They need food. And God responds to that by graciously sending them bread from heaven. That's who God is. Okay? God is a God who can be trusted to provide for their needs and our needs. But the Israelites don't, they don't fully trust God. They, 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 they kind of trust God. Like they trust God enough to go out six days, but that seventh day, I was like, oh, we, we just need to be sure. We need to have a backup plan. So why would they do that? Why would they struggle? Once again, let's try to have some empathy for the Israelites. As I said before, the Exodus is, is less about the Israelites being freed and more about the Israelites being transferred from one master to another master. They're being transferred from Pharaoh to Yahweh. So remember, these people have been, these people wandering around the desert, all they've known, whole life, is enslavement, brutal, exploitative, tyrant. Okay, that's all they know. All of a sudden, one day, they're free. They're free. But as I've heard, you know, I think it's been said many times, it takes one day for the Israelites to be taken out of Egypt, but it takes a lifetime for Egypt to be taken out of the Israelites. The Israelites have lived their whole life under this tyrant who cannot be trusted, who does not have their best interest in mind, who does not want to lead them to flourishing, who wants to exploit them. And just like that, they're free. But the old way of life is not so easily left behind, is it? They need training. That's why they're in the wilderness. They need to be trained. They need to learn what does it mean to trust that Yahweh is not like Pharaoh, that Yahweh really does have their best intentions in mind, that Yahweh is leading them to a life of flourishing. I think we probably get this. Think back to your, the time you committed to Jesus. Think back to the, when you passed through your own waters, the waters of baptism. As you, after you passed through that waters, as you came out the other side, were all the old temptations and all the old habits and all the old patterns of living, were they just gone just like that? Anybody who's like, yeah, I think so, like, Find someone who knows you and loves you, probably your spouse. Just check, check with them about that. I don't think it happens. I don't think the old patterns die so easily. I think we fail. I think we fail like the Israelites. And God, because God in the person of Jesus Christ has shown and told us how to live. Jesus has shown us the path to flourishing. And yet time and time again, we fail. We trust that we know the life to flourishing. We know the path of flourishing more than Jesus. We struggle with our old habits and old addictions and these old destructive patterns of living. We, we hoard resources because we kind of trust God, but, but, but maybe not for that next day. We pray for daily bread, but we want to store up plenty of bread just in case that bread doesn't come the next day. 
we are way more like the Israelites than we would like to admit. The Israelites, in our stories, they grumble. They're tested by God. They fail the test. And God responds patiently and lovingly. Like For me, this is just like the definition of long-suffering. I can just imagine God, after the second test has failed, taking a deep breath and saying, let's try this again. I'm so thankful that we serve a God who is ridiculously patient with us, who is ridiculously long-suffering with us, who watches us fail, and the next day says, let's try this again. We're on a journey of transformation to be like Jesus. That's our journey. And we are being tested and trained and disciplined just like the Israelites because we're loved, because it's for our own benefit. God wants us to flourish. God wants what's best for us. Do you believe that? And do you believe by God's grace when we fail, when we fail spectacularly, the next day God says to us, let's try this again. Let's keep going. God doesn't give up on us. Why? Because we're loved. Because as followers of Jesus, we have been rescued, we have been redeemed like the Israelites at great cost, at the cost greater than the cost when the Israelites were free. We were at the cost of Jesus' life. God does not rescue his people just for them to die in the wilderness. No, God takes us to the wilderness to train us. He doesn't give up on us when we fail. Because there's only one person that, that went to the wilderness who was tested and who passed, who at his baptism was told he was the beloved son of God, but then when he was driven into the wilderness. Why was Jesus driven in the wilderness? To be tested. Because wilderness is a place of testing. And what was his first test? What was Jesus' first test in the wilderness? Bread. Hunger. I mean, talk about being pushed to the extreme. Jesus has been pushed 40 days without eating. How long can a person endure without eating? 40 days. That's the moment the devil comes to test him. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the devil tempting you and testing you, but if you notice this epic clash in the wilderness between the Son of God and Satan, it's a conversation. That's, I think, Satan's kind of primary way to get at us, to start asking questions, to start planting doubts. Notice the the question that, that Satan asks Jesus. If you're the Son of God, these stones to become bread. If, just plant a little doubt. Just plant a little doubt that may, can you really trust your father? He said he loved you, but look at you. You're out in the wilderness. You haven't eaten for 40 days. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. How does Jesus respond to the lie? He replaces it with a truth. What is the truth? It's the word of God. Why do we need to study the word of God? So we can replace the lies of our culture with the word of God. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If Jesus in his time of testing returns to the Old Testament, to return to scripture, to battle the devil, do you think we need scripture? Do you think we need to immerse ourselves in scripture? Do you think we need to know scripture enough that when the devil speaks lies to us, we can say no, 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 and we can quote back scripture? These words that man does not live on bread alone, but every word of the God, that should sound familiar because that was what Jesus, that's what Moses was saying in that passage in Deuteronomy. 
Moses tells the Israelites that, that the point of testing the wilderness was ultimately to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Where the Israelites fail, Jesus passes. Because Jesus can look beyond the immediate hunger. He, he knows he's hungry. He knows he needs bread, just like the Israelites know they need bread. But he knows he needs something even more. He needs his Father. It's in the wilderness that God trains us and teaches us and teaches us what our deepest need is. And what our deepest need is, is God. As many have pointed out, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. It's in the wilderness. It's in when we're at the rope's end in our life. It's when we've been stretched to the max. It's when we don't even know how we're going to make it to the next day. It's when everything else is stripped back we finally have the chance to see that if we have Jesus, we have enough. Because he's the true bread of life. He's the true manna that comes from heaven. He's the true bread that only satisfies. He's the spring that appears in the desert. A spring welling up to eternal life. The only water that can truly quench our thirst. God wants to train you and to train me, just like he trained the Israelites, to want him more. That's what he wants. He wants us to want him more. As much as I would like to think that you and I can learn that lesson on the beach, uh, comfortable, that's just not where it happens. It happens in the deserts. It happens in the wildernesses of our life. That's where we begin to realize where we're finally tested and we begin to trust that Jesus is our deepest need and he wants to heal us. Let's pray. God, we come before you recognizing just how often we fall short of what you ask of us, what you've shown us through the life of Jesus, of what you've taught us through Jesus, to take the path that leads to flourishing. Thank you, God, that you are a merciful God, that we fail, and the next day you continue to work with us. And I ask you to continue work with our own community here and our own brokenness, Hear our desire to want you more than anything else. Feed us on the bread of life. Give us the water that actually satisfies us and teach us to want you more than anything. In Jesus' name, amen.